0: Okay, um, so continuing in first chapter of James, I'm going to go through verses 12 through 18 tonight, so to st- I'll start out by reading them. <laughs> Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, so he starts out with, "Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial," and, and this is a beatitude. So it sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Um, you know, Jesus in Matthew five, at the first of the Sermon on the Mount, gives a list, a series of beatitudes, and then last week I read in talking about the Rich man and poor man. Uh, in Luke six, Jesus' beatitudes, where he's pronounced blessing on the poor and woes on the rich. And just to reiterate what the theme we've been going over and over in various ways is this idea that that we're to face our trials with joy, knowing that the Lord uses trials in their life to as a spiritual workout, if you will, that He uses trials to to develop perseverance in us or steadfastness, as this verse today says, and that He um, that He uses that to move us on to perf- to perfection is what James says here, which I think really means maturity. So to to Christ likeness as we as we continue to grow, and then of course the implied reason for that is not simply that we are mature in and of ourselves, but that we then are able to be salt and light that we're able to glorify christ and minister for their lives so so this passage tonight it it takes it to another level uh because he, he he then says so so previously he said count it all joy when we face trials and now he says bless the man who is steadfast for he will obtain the crown of life so it's a promise and um and let me just read i'll just read he says for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And so what is the, what is the crown of life? And so it's really an image of, of you've made it, you've crossed the finish line, you've entered into heaven with Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, I think, more than anyone, um, deals... <laughs> just beautifully with this topic and comes back to it over and over but let me just read several of several of his passages just to give us an idea of of, of his concept of, of, of remaining steadfast and striving toward that toward that crown so this is first Corinthians nine twenty four through through 26 he says or through 27 he says do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every, athlete's, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And that, again, the wreath is the crown. See, it's, a, it's, a, it's basically a, a laurel wreath that's placed on the head. So he says they do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable so i do not run aimlessly i do not box this one beating the air but i discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others i myself should be disqualified now those are words of paul that are worth meditating on and i think they might it might challenge all of our, our theology He says, I discipline my body and keep it under control that I might not in the end be disqualified. Then uh, in Philippians, there's some beautiful lines in Philippians on this, but it's in Philippians 3, uh, Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Then he goes through this whole, this whole series about brothers joining and imitating me, and he warns, he warns of people that have gone after their own desires. And then he says, "Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved." And, and then Paul, um, at the end of his life, this is in Second Timothy, just before he's executed, he he basically says, I, "I've I've made it." It's really poignant words, and uh, and this whole section, this whole section is just it's Paul at the end of his life. Um, saying most, most, of the, most of the people have deserted him, and he's pleading that his, his cloak, his warm winter coat be brought, his, his reading materials, his scrolls. But he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, it's another word for the crown of life. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So, so, this, so the big picture here, again, is that trials are designed to perfect us for ministry and to assist us on our journey to heaven. And therefore, our good. And so... So the question then is, is how do we, how do we grow? How do we become like Jesus? And what we've been talking about is a big part of it. So so a tremendous part of our growth is simply facing the trials of life and facing them with steadfastness. So so remaining steadfast, so standing up to temptation, walking through these trials with the Lord. And then the other half is what what I would call planned disciplines, or you could say utilizing the means of grace that God has given. Uh, and so, so it would be it would be intake of God's word, both alone and in groups. So it's it's your your own private discipline of quiet time where you spend time taking in God's word, studying it, meditating on it, but then coming together in groups and, and getting others in your in your bodies. Uh, input uh, speaking to each other in psalms hymns and spiritual songs building each other up as each part does its work and then it's praying it's praying both alone and in groups it's taking communion together so again if if you think about it facing the trials of life and then and then doing that while we essentially eat the meal God has given us what we eat the food he's given us we take advantage of the means of grace that he's offered to us and then that under the Holy Spirit, so that we that we um, that we walk by the Holy Spirit, that we know that it's the Holy Spirit in this that gives us help, that gives us power, that gives us guidance. And so it, we do well to keep that in mind. And, to, and when Paul talks about I beat my body and make it my slave, to think about it's not ascetic practices. It's not he's not lashing himself, but he he simply. And we'll talk about it in a moment, about our desires, but he's, he's, he's quelling those desires and he's utilizing the, the grace that God has given him to grow. Okay, so why, why then is this process so difficult? We've been saved, we're in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, yet, yet it's very difficult. Well, let me read verses 13 to 15 let no one say when he is tempted I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death so so he starts out by indicating that we come up with all kinds of excuses when we fall into temptation, when we fall into into sin, and so let me just give you some examples of what that what that looks like. So, being a godly father is is difficult. It, you could say it's a trial, um, and so so it requires sacrifice. It requires getting up in the middle of the night. Now I can remember getting up with Stephen was a <laughs> was a good baby, but Benjamin was colicky, and I can remember getting up in the middle of the night just is for hours it felt like walking up and down the hall, you know, getting him to stop crying. So it involves uh, it involves playing out in the yard sometimes for hours when you'd rather be sitting in the study reading. Uh, it involves administering consistent loving discipline and providing discipleship. So, and, and and so we often as dads we often mess up. We often don't don't do well in that and, and one of the temptations is to is to blame our own dads say I, I have a father wound uh, he was demanding and performance oriented he, he rarely gave me praise he was a poor example therefore I'm not doing so well as a dad for being a godly husband is is arguably even harder so it says love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so we're we're to Emulate Jesus in the household. And when we mess up, we commonly say, well, it, it was my wife's fault. Uh, she she was, she nags all the time. She doesn't meet my needs. My love cup is, is empty or half half full. Now jean when she nags, it's only pretty much when I need it. And um, she does, she abundantly meets my needs and my love cup is build up so just just to be clear on that one (laughs) Um, or or, or we say it's my body's fault so we um, we get we get drunk and abuse our family or or crash into a a young family and, and injure them seriously and we say I have the disease of alcoholism or it's my brain's fault so I'm, I'm watching a, a Tennessee game, and they're losing yet again. And I, I punch the wall. And my fist goes through. And, and, but, but, but wait, that wasn't me. That was, that was my lizard brain. You all know about the lizard brain? <laughs> you know about the amygdala? And the, the midbrain can hijack the cerebral cortex? So that, that's what happened there. It took over. My emotions took over. I blacked out and I punched the wall and my fist went through. Thankfully, my cerebral cortex took over again, so I was able to cleverly cover the hole. But now, I'm poking fun at this, but that, this, this brain hijacking if, is a very common uh, current excuse that we have. It's even used in criminal defense. That the amygdala, the midbrain, has hijacked the cortex and caused someone to black out and do something. So the the idea, I'm belaboring it now, but the idea is that bad things I do are not my fault. They don't come from me. My parents, spouse, body drug me into sin. So what are we really saying? What are we we saying when we use all those excuses? I mean, ultimately, what are we ultimately saying? And that's that God, the creator, uh, is the one that made me this way. And he's the one that gave me my father, my wife, my body, including my midbrain and capacity for intense anger. So it's God who tempted me. It's God who lured me into this sin. It's his fault. That's what we're saying. If we make those excuses, and that's exactly what James is talking about. So James vigorously shoots down this line of thinking. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Just don't go there. And you could even use a theological argument there. You could say, uh, so you're going through a trial and you're tempted to sin, so you're drawn toward a sin in the context of your trial in a way that seems irresistible. Well, you could argue, well, God is sovereign. Uh, He's he's in charge of all this. Uh, He's in charge of my circumstances and the temptation seems irresistible, so isn't it God that's drawing me into this? And again, James is clear. He says God tempts no one. He doesn't lure us into sin. He doesn't trick us or lie to us. Rather, he allows trials, then gives us the Holy Spirit and everything we need to get through them. So it says in Corinthians, he, pro- he provides a way out. So And he allows us in these trials, as we've been going over and over, to learn perseverance, to grow in likeness, and to get the crown of life. To get to ultimately be with Him in glory. Now, before He says God tempts no one, there, there's a more there's a line that to me was more confusing, and I had, I thought about it for a long time, and it says, "For God cannot be tempted with evil." And how do you, how do you think that fits into this? And I, I'll just say I I'm open for questioning on this, but but I, in, in in one of the commentaries I read. Was the best explanation I've seen, and that it's, it basically should read, "Evil men should not put God to the test," and the close translation be, "For God should not be tested with evil." Now, and this really is is likely harkening back to to the Israelites in the desert, um, and at Paul after this 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 part in Corinthians where he's talking about um, beating his body and making his slave goes straight into a warning against idolatry. And this is First this is Corinthians 10, and he uses the example of the Israelites, and he says, basically, what happened with them in the desert is an example to us. That's not just some antiquated story of this, this group of people that misbehaved in the desert. It's a warning. And he says, he talks about all the privileges they had, that God gave them food to eat, and they, they drank from a rock, which was Jesus Christ. But he says nevertheless with most of them God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did uh, and he says do not be idolaters as some of them were and then finally he says and this this mm-hmm. goes directly with this interpretation of this verse he says we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So he's saying don't, so God is slow to anger, but don't put him to the test. Don't accuse God. Don't, especially don't blame your sin on God. So then, so then the question becomes, why are we tempted to sin when we're in the midst of trials of many kinds? And again, James is very clear on this. James never waffles on these issues. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So what's he talking about there? He's lured and enticed by his own desire. So he's talking about the residual corruption in the heart of the believer. This is not unbeliever. he's talking to brothers here, he's talking to believers. So he's talking about the corruption in our hearts the enemy within the flesh if you will and so even as even as believers our love life is not what it should be we, we don't love God like we should we don't love him with heart soul mind and strength so we allow other things to compete with God for our affections and even other things that are meant to be good gifts to us from God so sports food money reputation health appearance comfort we have evil desires that's what James means by evil desires we have these things that could just be accepted as good gifts we have elevated them we have loved them to a point that we that our treasure is not in heaven but it's here on earth so we have idols so when Satan comes to destroy us he attaches he, he attaches his destructive lies to one of those idols and seeks to pull us down with it. And and as we know, there there are consequences. Verse 15 says, "'Then desire, when it has conceived, "'gives birth to sin, "'and sin, when it has fully grown, "'brings forth death.'" Now, one of the best illustrations I've seen of this, or one of the most vivid illustrations I've seen of this in, in novel form, is a book called Brotherhood of Betrayal by Randall Author, who was a pastor and a missionary. And he wrote this story about, it's about a young couple that they met in, uh, they met when they were teenagers and had both been radically saved in the context of a somewhat legalistic church in the South. And they uh, went through Bible college together, uh, got married and then went on to the mission field. And they uh, set up their, uh, they, they they planted a church in Stockholm, Sweden, and uh, it grew. It grew to a vibrant body of about 200, and uh, they developed great friends in that context. They had three children. They were there for nine years, and um, three years before their, their ministry there ended, the, the um, Clay, the pastor, the husband... Had been and he had always worked out. He had always taken care of his body, and but he uh, he was working out at a at a local gym that none of the other church members and his wife didn't go to. And he he met there a beautiful Swedish woman who was also married and had children, and he commenced a three-year affair with her. And in the context of that affair, it was an on again, off again affair where he kept resisting. He was convicted and would leave her, but then kept being drawn back in. And at the end of those three years, he, he met another woman, another sweet, beautiful Swedish woman, who was in this case very wealthy, and who enticed him to leave with her. And so he he just, he literally just abandoned his family. He left, ended up in Costa Rica with this woman, living with her, living a just a sinful lifestyle, and, um, and if, as you might imagine, it, things went from bad to worse, and she ended up leaving him. He ends up living in a shack as a broken-down alcoholic. Meanwhile, his wife and, and kids have moved back to the United States, and long story short, have, after being sort of treated badly in the context of the legalistic church, Met a pastor and got into a church setting where they were nurtured and cared for. She, after seven years, got a divorce based on abandonment, and um, and married another man who was a who ended up being a great husband. and And the this it, it ends. This story ends in a most um, this heart wrenching way because because Clay, the pastor, comes to the end of himself. And finally, works his way. He he, he stops alcohol and he um, he works hard and gets enough money to get back to the United States. And of course, he knows nothing. He he's had no contact. Has no idea what's going on. But his desire is to find his family and get back with them. And um and so he the first thing he does is goes to his his own. He goes to find his own parents and he goes to the home they lived in and fa- finds out that they both have died. And and then he. So he goes on this long trek of. He calls the pastor of his former church, and the pastor just just blasts him. And then he and then he finds out that his wife has moved to New York with this man. And there's this right right toward the end. There's this this heart wrenching scene where he um. Where he's looking into the house. That they, they are he he and the 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 new family, if you will, has moved into this house and and he's sitting out in the backyard looking in through the, the plate glass window and, and he sees this life. He sees them building a fire, sitting around the table laughing, having this vibrant life together. And he's sitting out there. Um, and, oh, and I did not part, part of the story is he, he contracted AIDS in the process, so he's also extremely sick. But he's sitting there watching them and he's remembering he's remembering the life he had, and he's thinking about what he walked into. He's thinking about what his desire took him into. And it ends with, let me just read, he ends He ends up going back to Sweden, he's right at the end, he's looking into the yard of the home that they were in when they were there, and he's looking at the swing set that he built for his kids. And he, again, he's remembering. Again, remembering the choice the choice he made and how desire, led to sin which is leading to death but he writes this letter to his his wife uh, I'll read some of it he says I just want you to know for your own deserved satisfaction that the very moment I so foolishly walked out of your life and the children's I started spiraling nonstop, mentally emotionally physically into a nightmarish and bottomless hell mm-hmm. I know you probably would not believe me if you heard me say it over and over again for a million years but the only moments of true happiness for me since I exited your life have been when I've lost myself in my thoughts and pretended my soul was clean and I was back in our home in Stockholm holding you and the children in my arms, laughing together, continuing to build a life together. I've tried a few times in the moments of daring to reconnect with a decent-sized human race, especially church, but it seems that only God can forgive me. I'm not blaming anyone. I am defenseless. The complete and total absence of human forgiveness, however, is more difficult than I can be imagined. In addition to hearing that I've suffered dearly for my moral and social transgressions. Please, please, please hear me when I say that you are the only woman I have true, ever truly loved. Why, oh, why didn't I see that fact in the beginning? If you can ever find the ability in the dark, forgotten places of your heart, will you please forgive the day I was ever born?" So so it just, just a heart-wrenching, vivid description of desire. Desire in the human heart leading to sin, spiraling down, leading to death. So, so James, he closes this section on, on growth and wisdom through trials and temptation with a warning followed by a beautiful and unique presentation of the gospel. So verses 16 to 18 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruit of his creatures so he says do not be deceived my beloved brothers so so Satan wants to use our trials to destroy us so he wants to he wants to Pull us in our temptations into sin and death. So he tells us, so Satan Satan tells us a lie. What's the use? Just give up. Don't hang in there. You deserve better. Can't you see that God is not actually good? (coughs) Can't you see that God's capricious, that he's always changing his mind? So, So Satan wants us to be angry with God. He wants us to be blaming God, to be putting him to the test. To be looking up and saying you've got some explaining to do but we can combat lies with truth again verse 17 and 18 every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures so God loves to give good gifts to His children. He's Creator God. He's the Creator of the moon, stars, and every good thing. So He's the Father of lights, and He doesn't have a dark side. God's like the sun. He's not like the moon, <laughs> right? So there's no shifting shadows. There's no turning there. So he, He's working everything for good. He's making us a new creation. And then, then the gospel. He says. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So he, he, he brought us forth. That, the, the language there is literally he gave birth to us. This is new birth. It's being born again. And, and it contrasts with the sequence above that we just talked about where sin, where, where temptation gives birth to sin, which gives birth to death. And so this is by, it says, by his own will. This is by God's will, not ours. We were completely dead, helpless in our sins, and He says it took us and took us and saved us by the word of truth. This is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And 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 here, He, when He talks about the first fruits, I think He is talking specifically about this group of believers that He's writing to, and it's that these poor, dispersed, and harassed believers should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures or of his creation. And so he's, he's, he's building them up. He's saying that you guys are starting something, that you're pioneer Christians, that, that your sacrifice basically is gonna go down the ages, it's gonna start the great chain reaction that led us to be in this room tonight. So it led us to be here worshiping God, filled with his Holy Spirit, boasting in Christ, so, glory to God let's let's pray Father we, we thank you for your word and I pray um, I pray that these aspects of your word that perhaps maybe we know in superficial ways, but maybe we need to know in deep deeper parts of our soul um, how we how we might tend to um, make excuses for for sin, how we might tend not to see that that it's our own evil desires that are, that are setting us up for temptation. So I pray that we would, would, would know our hearts and guard our hearts. And I pray that we would hear this word about this risk, this risk that exists that, that, that temptation would lead to sin, which would lead to death, even, even, if, even if we make it to heaven like a singed ember that there's, there's a danger of our life being fruitless. Pray that we would see why Paul was so vigorous in his statements. What, what he's talking about when he talks about running the race with vigor, about beating his body and making it his slave, pray that we would see that and understand it and be moved by it. So Father, we thank you for our Community Church and thank you for your word and, and pray that we would, would walk in it this week. In Jesus' name, amen. We uh, do have fellowship meal uh, tonight. We have barbecue, and you are welcome to uh, stay.